Hi, this is Sandor Katz. Welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Probiotic Life. And I wanted to say thank you so much for everyone who's uh, been supporting the podcast by giving it a rating or review. Uh, That's been very helpful. And in fact, I am very thankful um, that this podcast is where it is right now. I'm thankful for my wife, Mareg, for supporting me in in putting this together and um yeah giving me the the support the the go ahead just to you know work those late nights just to get this all organized and everything um and i am thankful for this opportunity that i had to chat with sandal cats um he is the interview the guest that we have today on the probiotic life and wow i had a great time interviewing him. I hope that you guys have a great time listening to this. So, um, we talk about fermentation. I mean, what did you expect from the king of fermentation? Um, yes, he wrote a book called The Art of Fermentation and one before that, The uh, Wild Fermentation. So, check those out. Check out what Cassandra's doing on his website, wildfermentation.com. I am excited to announce some big news about this podcast but I'm going to tease you a little bit. I will let you know what's happening next time. So if you are listening to this when it just came out, you're going to have, a, have to wait, but there's some big news coming up. So uh, look forward to that. I, uh, the next podcast, the next interview will, will be with Dan Kittridge, who founded the Bionutrient Food Association. So that's a fantastic um, and fascinating conversation we have about um, nutrients in the soil and nutrients in plants. Um, but for now, enjoy this delicious conversation with Sandor Katz. Welcome to the show, Sandor. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And you are based out of Tennessee, is that right? Yep, yep. Great. So um, we're talking from different sides of the world, um, but a common interest in fermentation. Uh, wonderful. So, Sandor, I'm, I'm actually interested. You've got, uh, this is a very interesting name. Where, is that, where does that name come from? Um, well, the name Sandor um, is actually uh, generally regarded as a Hungarian name, um, although it's been in the Lithuanian branch of my family for some generations. So nobody really knows how um, the Lithuanian family ended up with a Hungarian name. I see. 
Uh, and then Katz, Katz is, uh, yeah, my, my, my immigrant grandfather, uh, uh, Katz was from Lithuania. Um, and, uh, it's a kind of common, um, Eastern European, uh, Jewish name, kind of probably Germanic in origin. Right. So you have that, uh, European heritage, which is, um, has a lot of traditions in, um, in fermenting things, isn't it? Well, I mean, sure. I, I, I mean, my perspective, I mean, the ferments that were familiar to me early in my life were generally from that Eastern European fermentation tradition. But, uh, you know, what I have, you know, sort of learned as I got interested in fermentation and started studying fermentation traditions around the world is that, um, you know, fermentation is um, a practice that is, uh, you know, shared uh, by people all around the world. And, um, you know, I don't think that uh, European fermentation traditions are, you know, any... um, uh, to any greater extent in their food uh, uh, traditions than, um, you know, in Asia, um, you know, Africa, Central America, it seems like, you know, fermentation is pretty much a, a universal um, among human cultures. Um, you know, since you're in Australia, and I imagine many of your listeners are in Australia, I can tell you that for years, people told me that um, um, the Aboriginal people of Australia were, were one example of of an indigenous culture that did not have a ferment, any fermentation practices. And, um, you know, in my, um, you know, relatively cursory investigations, uh, you know, I have learned that this is definitely not true, that there are, um, you know, a number of examples of fermentation, uh, you know, practiced by um, the Aboriginal people of Australia. So, I mean, really in every part of world people have incorporated fermentation into their um, culinary traditions and you know what we now understand the insight that microbiology has given us that people didn't always have is that you know everything that makes up our food all the plants and all the animal products that we eat are populated by these elaborate communities of microorganisms and um, uh, you know any people that went beyond sort of finding food to eat that day you know, started learning about the dynamics of how food fares over time under different storage conditions and, you know, sort of figured out ways of, you know, applying this knowledge in useful ways. Yeah, so it's just been a part of our, our history ever since, ever since man began, really, isn't it? Well, I mean, one could argue uh, longer than that. <laughs> True. So would you... Would you uh, share with us a little bit about how you actually got into fermentation, how this this uh, fermentation bug bit you. Well, I would say that there were, um, you know, kind of three uh, uh, stages of the development of my interest in fermentation. Um, you know, the first was my childhood in New York City um, that included, um, you know, eating lots of pickles uh, as well as yogurt and cheeses and breads and cured meats. Uh, and certainly my parents were drinking uh, beer and wine. Um, so I was familiar with fermentation, but pickles were the flavor that really sort of caught my attention. And as a kid, I loved pickles. It was one of my favorite foods. And um, I wasn't thinking about fermentation. Nobody was talking about fermentation. But, you know, the the, the pickles of my youth that I loved so much were from cucumbers fermented with garlic and dill. Um, and I, you know, when I moved away from New York, I later learned that this is not the typical, um, you know, pickle that, you know, sort of Americans eat from the supermarket, uh, which are 
older, more, um, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 vinegar process. Um, but I grew up loving these fermented uh, 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 pickles and just uh, being drawn to the flavor of lactic acid, really. Um, then later on in my mid-20s, I spent a couple of years following a macrobiotic diet. And macrobiotics is where I sort of first learned that there were some special, um, you know, probiotic qualities in this in these foods. And macrobiotics uh, places a great emphasis on the digestive benefits of, um, you know, pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, and other kinds of live culture ferments. And I started observing that these pickles that I had been eating all of my life, when I would eat them, I could actually feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva. So in a very tangible way, I started to associate, um, you know, eating these foods with getting my digestive juices flowing. Um, but, but really what got me investigating fermentation, practicing fermentation, learning how to ferment things is that, um, in, uh, 1993, uh, almost 25 years ago, I moved from New York to a community in rural Tennessee and I got involved in gardening. And, um, you know, the first season that I was gardening, um, you know, I noticed that all of the cabbage was ready at about the same time. And, you know, I was such a naive city kid. It had never occurred to me that in a garden or on a farm, you know, all of a given crop might be ready at the same time. But when I was faced with this reality of agriculture, um, I decided to learn how to make sauerkraut. And sauerkraut was really my uh, gateway into fermentation. I, I couldn't believe how easy and straightforward it was. I couldn't believe how delicious the homemade kraut was. And, um, you know, that kind of inspired me to start investigating you know, how to make yogurt, uh, you know, how to make country wines from different kinds of berries. Um, and, uh, you know, it began, um, uh, you know, sort of an obsession that has, um, um, you know, only intensified, <laughs> uh, uh, in the time since then. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, even the, um, time that I've been doing this podcast, getting into fermentation, you, you start doing it and D you go deeper down the rabbit hole. It just it hooks you, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's really. Um, I mean, it's so um, you know satisfying and fun and interesting. Um, you know, and then of course the um, you know the results are um, you know kind of addictive. I mean, just you know delicious, fresh fermented foods are wonderful. Mm -hmm. As you were talking about sauerkraut and and pickles, I'm thinking of my German heritage and. Same thing, you know. I'm just thinking of those, those, the the sour pickles rather than the sweet pickles um, that they have with almost every meal. Yeah, totally, totally delicious, and you know, I mean, such an enhancement to whatever else you're eating and to the whole uh, uh, eating experience. And um, um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I mean, fermented foods, uh, uh, you know, are many of the greatest delicacies that people enjoy around the world. And certainly they're, they're the basis of our condiments of the, you know, sort of the, 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 the tasty and moist things that we use to make, um, you know, plain and dry foods, uh, you know, more exciting to the palate. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I didn't actually mention this before, but uh, you have written a couple of books um, and you can find them on your website. Is that right? Wildfermentation.com? 
Yeah, sure. So I mean, I have a website called wildfermentation.com, and that's also the title of my original book about fermentation, uh, uh, Wild Fermentation, that was published in 2003 and then um, uh, revised and updated just last year. Uh, so there's a brand new version of Wild Fermentation available. And then I wrote a second book that's uh, about four times as long, much more uh, thorough, uh, that's called The Art of Fermentation that was published in 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've only read about 10% of it, but it's blowing my mind just going through um, the history and, and everything behind, not necessarily the recipes, um, uh, but the science and the culture behind fermentation. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of my major interests is just uh, you know broadening our perspective for for how we think about these foods, and I think that the uh, you know, while you certainly do not need to be a scientist or know anything about the science in order to um, you know make these foods and even make them well, um, you know I, I, I think that um, you know the science just uh, shines so much light on what's happening that I think that the you know the the the, the biology and the biochemistry of it all is very uh, is 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 very fascinating. And I think that, um, uh, you know, in every different cultural tradition, there are such sort of, you know, deep roots of fermentation practices. And, you know, they, we, we've, we've invested them with really so much significance and so much meaning that I think that, you know, there's, there, there are many interesting, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, anthropological uh, uh, perspectives on them. And, you know, they all have a, a, a long, rich uh, history as well. So, so I'm always trying to sort of like, you know, pull in these other broader perspectives when I, when I talk about fermentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so after you got into fermentation, uh, share with us a little bit about how you came to writing these books. Why was it that you felt like you had something that um, you just needed to share with everyone else? What, what was that, um, what was that process? Well, I'll say that it sort of came on me a bit gradually, um, uh, you know, so my, my first batch of sauerkraut was in, uh, 1993. Um, and then, uh, you know, I got obsessed, uh, some friends who live about an hour away, um, were organizing a, um, a food skill share, uh, event and, uh, they, uh, had had some of my kraut and knew of my obsession and they invited me to teach a sauerkraut making workshop. And so that was 1998 when I taught my first, uh, sauerkraut making workshop. And, um, and then I was doing that as an annual event. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was really fun for me to, to share this, to demystify it, to, um, you know, sort of hear, uh, how much anxiety people projected on the process and then be able to, um, uh, assuage their fears and, uh, you know, help, uh, give them the, the, the confidence to just go home and try doing it. Um, but uh, in 2001, I, uh, I spent a summer in another part of the U.S., in, in Maine, and I was missing this annual event. And uh, so I decided to, you know, write down um, my uh, fermentation recipes into a little um, uh, a booklet or zine. So um, in the summer of 2001, I uh, self-published this, uh, you know, little 32-page uh, booklet that I called Wild Fermentation. But as soon as I wrote that, I realized, oh, 
you know, this is very interesting topic um, that actually I have a lot to say about. And as I did a little bit of research just to write that little booklet, you know, I just I realized what a um, you know kind of vast topic it was. And um, you know, while there is tons of literature about fermentation, there are you know uh, hundreds of bread making books, there are cheese making books, there are wine making books, there are beer brewing books. Um, uh, there's a fairly limited, um, um, literature that is sort of broadly how to ferment things yourself at home. So it, it just occurred to me that there was, um, um, like a little bit of a vacuum of information and that it could be useful for other people like myself if there were a kind of, you know, collection of, um, uh, you know, recipes and, uh, you know, guidance as to, you know, how to ferment different kinds of things, what kinds of uh, selective environments you're trying to create, what kinds of, um, you know, starters you need uh, uh, and such. So, um, so you know, I decided to write that book. Um, and it involved a lot of research, a lot of experimentation. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the more I have put out information about fermentation, you know, the more I have realized what a hunger there is for this information because, you know, these foods are just so important to so many different um, culinary traditions. And yet, um, you know, because of the 20th century war on bacteria and, you know, the broad indoctrination that most of us have received that, you know, bacteria are so dangerous, um, you know, People have become really fearful about fermentation and imagine that, you know, you need a microscope and the ability to distinguish between different kinds of microorganisms. You need a laboratory with perfectly controlled conditions. Um, you know, you need a PhD or at least a, um, you know, degree in food science. So, um, you know, it's just been tremendously gratifying to be able to, um, you know, dispel some of these fears for people and, um, you know, empower them with the information that they need in order to do it. And, um, you know, the more I teach, the more I learn. So, you know, that's why I've had like, you know, several different books and, um, you know, revisions and, and things because it's been an ongoing learning curve uh, uh, for me. Mm -hmm. You've uh, recently come back from South America. Is that right? Um, I was in Mexico. Uh, for the last 10 days. And um, I'm actually going to South America um, at the end of next month. Um, but I'm just back from uh, from Mexico where, um, uh, uh, you know, there I, I found just as much um, um, interest and excitement about fermentation as I have uh, uh, encountered other places. Um, and also I got to, um, you know, learn about a few, um, you know, really distinctive um, Mexican ferments. Mm-hmm. And you're also uh, in, uh, was it Asia last year or th this year? Yeah, um, uh, from November uh, 2016 until January uh, of this year. Um, I was in um, China, Hong Kong, uh, and Japan. Wow. So you were, you were learning about and teaching about fermentation, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So what are, what are some of the things that, that, that we don't get over here? Um, well, I mean, as you alluded or as you said, there is ferments from all around the world. Is there different um, ways that people think about them in different cultures or different ways they, um, yeah, different ways of respecting the food? 
Well, um, sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I spent uh, four days in like a tiny village in um, in Guizhou, uh, a, a province in southwestern China. Um, uh, you know, and the village is you know, more or less a subsistence village. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether that's in, you know, kind of China or anywhere else. You know, people who live a subsistence life, um, you know, fermentation is an essential part of how they make effective use of the food resources that are available to them. Um, so, uh, you know, in this little village, we were eating, uh, fish fermented in rice, um, at, you know, twice a day, like, you know, every, every lunch and dinner that was, that was part of it was this fermented fish. This was just like a staple, um, um, in, in this particular village. Um, people celebrated with alcohol. They made all of their alcohol. They were making, uh, you know, fermenting rice and, you know, sometimes drinking it in a fermented form um, and sometimes distilling that and drinking a much stronger uh, perspiration that they distilled. But, you know, what was significant to me is like everybody is making it for themselves. There's nowhere without, you know, driving 100 miles for them to, to, to buy it. Um, you know, it's something that sort of each household is producing, um, you know, soy condiments, everybody's producing their own, um, uh, pickled vegetables, everybody's making their own. So it's just, it's just part of the rhythm of life. And so that's not a thing of like, you know, sort of China versus Australia versus the United States. That's a, that, that this is a question of like, you know, people who are living a subsistence lifestyle. And, you know, I've, I, I have visited, you know, subsistence villages in India where I saw, you know, very similar kind of, you know, daily practice of fermentation just because it was, you know, how they're, you know, how they're sustaining themselves. Oh, that's uh, really interesting because um, it sounds like you have um, or you're interested in the way that people can do it for themselves and and how they can create something that's completely unique and completely different from um, what everybody else is doing. Yeah, I mean, my emphasis certainly is on, you know, do-it-yourself fermentation and, you know, empowering people with the information that they need. Yeah, that, that's not to say that, you know, everybody is inclined to doing it themselves. And, um, you know, I've, I've met so many people, um, you know, all around the world who have started uh, small uh, business enterprises where they're fermenting local foods and, um, you know, marketing them for sale. So, um, you know, it's not that I think everybody has to do it themselves. I mean, I think it's great. This is a you know perfect, um, 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 you know, piece of the local food puzzle. Um, you know, local food isn't just, you know, growing uh, 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 vegetables and um, uh, uh, farming. It's also, you know, transforming the raw products of agriculture into, um, you know, foods that people enjoy eating. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, the home is not the only place to be practicing fermentation. It's part of our sort of, you know, economic uh, uh, web but I think that it's, um, um, you know, we get better quality products um, um, from small regional producers than we do from, you know, the large, um, you know, multinational producers. Mm -hmm. So you're really talking about decentralized food system and uh, small, small scale farming there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So what's something that would, uh, you would say is maybe just one thing that you've learnt in the last couple of months or picked up from your travels that you're really excited about now? Well, I'll tell you that since I got home yesterday, um, um, I've been loving the the pao cai, the, the Chinese-style fermented vegetables that I made two weeks ago just before I left. But, um, you know, the, 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 the brine really matured. The, um, the spicing that I, that I added to it has just really, um, uh, you know, infused in a, in, in a very strong and satisfying way into it. And, um, you know, I've been snacking on, you know, just little pieces of cabbage, um, you know, pickled in this brine that I spiced with um, licorice root and star anise and uh, ginger and uh, Sichuan peppercorns and um, and they're so delicious. I'm, I'm just oh, like in this, in this moment I'm loving those right before uh, we talked I, I ate a few pieces of it I can I can really like still taste it in my mouth. <laughs> Now I'm watering. My mouth is watering. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. But you know, the lesson for me, just learning about um, uh, the way they're, um, you know, seasoning sauerkraut in in China. And I don't mean to suggest that there's a singular way, because you know, it seemed like almost every family had, you know, their unique, uh, you know, combination of um, spices and um, herbs that they would that they would put into it. And um, you know, certainly not all. I, I don't know the names of all the herbs I saw people putting in. Um, but you know, it just made me feel, I think just more, um, bold to, uh, just experiment and just put different kinds of seasonings. I mean, I guess I had sort of stayed in a certain, um, range of seasonings that were familiar, you know, through the Eastern European traditions that I was more familiar with. But, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, 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 in China, I, I, I feel like they're being, you know, much more, um, you know, kind of bold and, uh, experimental and broad in the kinds of seasonings that they're incorporating into their fermented vegetables. Right. So um, just really going out there and uh, do they do much foraging where they're like actually f figuring out, oh, we can use a bit of this or some of the root of that to incorporate into their ferments? Um well, sure. I mean, I'm sure in the village they're doing this. Um, you, you know, actually, most of the vegetable fermentation that I did with people was in cities. And so, you know, we would go to the market and they would, you know, go to, um, um, you know, like an, an herb seller in, in the market. And some of what they bought was um, uh, familiar and obvious to me. And some of what they bought, we were never able to sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, figure out what it was. <laughs> there was no English translation. No, no. I mean, I was actually the only non-Chinese speaker there. But I mean, just because someone speaks Chinese doesn't mean that they're not going to know the names of all those herbs and be able to translate them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, also, I uh, recently purchased uh, Pascal Badar's book on uh, foraging and, and all the different ferments that he does. I was really inspired to try making some some cider just from from whatever I could find. And that actually turned out not too bad, you know? If, I mean, for my first time going making cider, I was like, cool, okay. So this is actually relatively easy to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, you can really incorporate, like, you know, anything that's edible, you know, in, into them. 
Um, so, so you know, if your passion is foraging, you can absolutely make um, um, uh, uh, pickles and sauerkraut uh, uh, out of um, uh, uh, foraged plants. You can absolutely make different kinds of beverages out of them. Um, Pascal Baudard is, uh, you know, uh, a really incredible inspiration. He's a Belgian guy who lives in L.A. who's really devoted himself to foraging and doing interesting things with, with what he forages. His book is gorgeous, and actually, he's just written another book, which I have an advanced copy that I've been perusing. That's about um, uh, fermented beverages uh, uh, with forged materials. Um, and so, you know, absolutely, you can, um, you know, add all kinds of, you know, f- uh, uh, foraged herbs, foraged berries, foraged flowers um, um, into um, f- various kinds of fermented beverages, whether they're lightly fermented uh, um, soft drinks um, or whether they're alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. We haven't actually talked about any of the, the technical sides of fermenting, but, you know, the this show the idea is the probiotic life um, not just probiotics but the the greater meaning of the word probiotic for life how can we create life around us and we've talked to some um, soil scientists um, Dr. Elaine Ingham who's the queen of compost tea um, and really getting that relationship between the soil and uh, human health, soil health, human health, and ecological health. Um, do you have any insights into the the relationship between soil health and human health? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, the bacteria that are part of us, you know, are the soil bacteria. You know, and and generally the intermediaries are the plants that we eat that grow out of the soil. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a very, it's, it's sort of a very elegant cycle, you know, I mean, the way we and, um, you know, sort of animals get most bacteria uh, that we need into our bodies is through ingesting them. Um, and, um, you know, the things that we are ingesting, um, you know, are primarily plants. I mean, even if we're heavy meat eaters, then the meat that we're eating, those animals were eating plants. Um, so I, I mean, really the, 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 soil where the, the source of the bacteria that are part of the plants, um, you know, is the ultimate source of most of the bacteria that are part of you and, 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 and of me. Um, and, um, uh, and then, you know, when, when, when living things die, whether they're plants or whether they're, you know, animals or, 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 or people, then, um, you know, these bacteria, some within us, you know, some in the soil that we're buried in, you know, decompose us again back into, you know, soil that can nourish further plants. So, um, you know, we, we are part of the cycle of soil bacteria. Mm-hmm. And it's really uh, interesting you, you talk about that cycle in, um, I'm a big proponent of Korean natural farming where they do a lot of uh, fermenting. Are you familiar with that, the Korean natural farming? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and I mean, I would just say more broadly, this is what all, I mean, Korean natural farming is a uh, sort of, you know, particular system of this, but 
you know, when you when you make a compost pile, it's all, you know, it's just like, you know, the bacteria that 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 on your food scraps, the bacteria that are on your your uh, garden scraps, um, you know, just breaking everything back down into um, uh, 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 into more soil. I know in Korean natural farming, you're, you know, basically like taking rice or some other nutritive medium and you're sort of putting it, uh, you know, you're basically burying it in the soil and getting, um, um, you know, soil organisms and specifically mycelium to, um, uh, uh, you know, grow on that and then using that as a starter for your uh, composting process. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually interviewed uh, one of the guys, Drake, from Hawaii, who's doing it over there. And he very uh, in ingests it. So, he, yeah, he, he actually ingests it, mixes it with water and, and drinks the basically plant nutrients, but they're, they're good for our health as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, like, the sort of detailed methodologies of Korean natural farming, but, um, you, you know, it's one of, um, you know, many, many different examples of, you know, how people um, uh, incorporate in systematic ways, um, you know, sort of these ideas of, um, um, you know, kind of harnessing the power of, uh, bacteria and fungi, um, you know, in, for, 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 for many different things. I mean, they use it, you know, not only for soil fertility, not only for personal health, for cleaning, um, and for, for, for many different things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that knowledge gets passed down for a ge- from generation to generation, um, except for maybe the last one or two generations. Yeah, sure. Um, um, you know, I mean, this. Is, I, I mean, I would say that um, you know, fermentation um, uh, uh, techniques, methods, um, you know, along with more broadly food production techniques and methods, um, you know, have been some of the most essential cultural information. Um, you know that we have, um, you know, inherited from the previous generations that uh, you know sort of figured this stuff uh, uh, out, and um, I think that this has been you know one of the big problems is that um, you know sort of human culture has um, uh, you know kind of. I mean, we usually would talk about it in terms of liberating ourselves from um, the necessities of food production, but um, but we've also we 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 are so rapidly losing so much um, essential information, and um, I mean that's been a big part of my motivation. Just that this is you know this is really important information that that we can't lose, and so um, you know there has been this um, you know kind of hiccup and a couple of generations of uh, failing to pass it down, um, but. Um, you know, luckily the information still exists. The info, you know, there, it, some people still possess this information. Uh, in certain places, this information is written down, and it's trying to sort of um, um, share it with more people, make this information uh, more alive again, and part of people's um, um, uh, daily practices. 
um, you know, so that we can, I mean, first of all, not be completely dependent on these sort of, you know, globalized systems of food mass production, which, um, you know, I, I would say are, you know, not only producing inferior food, but are very, um, you know, fragile and, um, uh, um, susceptible to, you know, various forms of, uh, uh, disruption, um, you know, and also enabling people to, um, you know, produce delicious and high quality food for themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it is very empowering when you either grow something yourself and just take a bite of that juicy tomato, um, that you've grown yourself. There's something very satisfying about that. Same with fermenting there's something really satisfying with like you said having a having a bit of your own sauerkraut or kimchi or whatever it is something deep within us says yes this is right yeah 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 no i mean i think it's i think it's uh uh it it, it can be it can be very powerful and then i think at a um you know i mean right now i I don't know what the statistics are like in australia i would imagine they're somewhat uh, uh, similar, but in the United States, we have less than one person in a hundred who is uh, directly involved in, um, you know, agriculture or food production. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, this, this, this leaves us in a very vulnerable place. And it also, um, it just cuts people off from their environment, like an essential part of how every living creature relates to the environment around it is the pursuit of food. And, um, you you know, Mm -hmm. I think like, you know, growing some plants, becoming familiar with plants and the life cycle of plants, um, um, you know, and, or, you know, raising some animals, but, um, you know, just, just doing some small bit of, uh, food production, uh, uh, yourself really, uh, in very powerful ways, um, gets you more connected to the environment and other life forms around you. And, you know, I think that that's one of the most powerful things about, about fermentation is, is it's putting people in touch with this, um, you know, sort of invisible life force that is, is everywhere. Um, and it's easy to miss it and not know it's there. But then once you start working with it, you just see, you know, how powerful and how, um, transformative, uh, you know, this invisible life force can be. Mm-hmm. It's, um, hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, that's the probiotic life, right? There is, um, yeah. um, uh, um, you know, sort of recognizing, appreciating, cultivating, um, you know, these invisible life forces rather than regarding them as, you know, our enemies to be destroyed by, um, you know, by chemical means. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about when you're traveling around the world, uh, what are some of the hesitations that people have to doing this stuff themselves? Well, um, okay. One thing I hear a lot is people think that it's, uh, it's so smelly and stinky and, um, you know, they, they don't want it in their house or maybe they love the smell, but uh, their partner, their kids, you know, somebody, you know, somebody doesn't like the smell. So, um, you know, definitely, um, you know, you're from cabbage, cabbage has sulfur compounds in it. And, um, you know, it certainly produces some odor and, um, you know, I personally, I, I love the smell of the fermenting cabbage in the corner of the kitchen, but, um, you know, I, I understand that not everybody does. So, I mean, I think that this is, uh, you know, that this can be a challenge for people. Um, 
um, you know, just, just fear of bacteria. You know, I mean, part of what got me interested in teaching about fermentation is the first time I taught a workshop, um, you know, the, the question on so many people's minds was, um, you know, how can I be sure that I have good bacteria growing in my jar of fermenting cabbage and not some, you know, dangerous bacteria that might, you know, make somebody sick or kill somebody. So, um, you know, we've, we've, um, we've just been taught to be so fearful of bacteria that, you know, we just project this anxiety onto this simple, safe process. Um, and, um, you know, we, we don't even, we're not even sure what it is we're afraid of. We're, we're just afraid. So, um, you know, I feel like a lot of what I do is just sort of reassuring people that, you know, every time you get cabbage submerged under brine, lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate in that environment. And, you know, even if there were some cells of bacteria that could make somebody sick, they they rapidly are destroyed um, as the sauerkraut acidifies. Um, the statistics with, with sauerkraut in particular or with fermented vegetables in general are, are stark. Um, you know, according to the United States Department of Agriculture, they have not been able to find one single example of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables, not only in the United States, but anywhere in the world that they're sharing data with. Um, so there are very few foods you could say this about. I mean, we can't say this about raw vegetables. I mean, we read every year uh, about um, uh, outbreaks of illness relating to uh, lettuce, spinach, tomatoes, Um you know, clearly there is the possibility of incidental contamination of vegetables. Usually it's manure from a factory farm washing downhill over a, a field of vegetables. Um, you know, honestly, it could just as well be um, a, a, a failure in hygiene systems. Someone who, you know, fails to wash their hands at, uh, you know, critical moments and, and, and handles the vegetables. Um, but even if vegetables had been exposed to some sort of incidental contamination, you know, once you get them submerged under brine, the lactic acid bacteria are always going to proliferate and dominate, uh, and they have an easy time, um, um, you know, overwhelming any incidental contaminants. And as they acidify the environment, um, you know, it destroys the, the, the bacteria that can make us sick. And this is the kind of brilliance of acidification as a strategy for preservation is that, you know, nothing that we worry about, you know, salmonella, E. coli, botulism, none of these, uh, you know, ba bacteria that have become household names because uh, we're afraid of them can can survive in a sufficiently acidic environment. So, um, uh, you know, sauerkraut is just like basically as safe as food gets. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating that uh, the good, what we determine as good bacteria already lives on the plants, on, on the leaves of the plants. I know in Korean natural farming, we take um, uh, plants that we pick early in the morning uh, where all the when all the plants growth hormones are in them, we add them one to one with sugar, and that osmotic pressure of the sugar draws out the liquid, and it's got all that um, growth hormone in there, but it's also got all of the bacteria that's on the leaves, and one one uh, example was the aloe vera has at least five different kinds of lactobacillus on the leaf surface. 
Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, as I understand it from like a, like a recent uh, uh, a visit with a micro, uh, microbiology lab studying uh, a vegetable fermentation, um, you know, it, it's present on the leaves in relatively low concentrations. And it's only when you sort of damage the leaves and sort of, you know, there's a, there's a flood of nutrients available to the bacteria that they rapidly proliferate and um, consistently dominate once you shred the vegetables and get them submerged. Um, but, but the bacteria themselves are very, are very widespread. I mean, um, uh, as I understand it, um, microbiologists now believe that all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth are host to lactic acid bacteria. Um, so, um, you know, the particular strains are going to be, uh, um, you know, almost unique field to field, region to region. Um, but um, as a broad group, you know, they are they are universally present on anything growing out of the soil. And I I say that specifically just because, um, you know, there is some question with hydroponic vegetables, whether they would have the proper uh, uh, bacteria because, you know, they're you know, they're not growing out of the soil. So they don't have the full complement of soil bacteria um, available to them. Mm, very interesting. So it sounds like you're, you keep up with the research, the current research um, of the time, what's going on. Is there anything in particular that you're um, really excited about the, the research coming out about? Well, I mean, I just think, you know, all of the research about bacteria that's coming out is fascinating. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's hard for us to comprehend. But, you know, pretty much until the new millennium, the way we were studying bacteria was studying individual bacteria, what we could, um, uh, uh, you know, basically isolate and culture in a Petri dish. And, you know, that is fundamentally not the way bacteria exist in the world. So, you know, basically until the, you know, sort of new methods of, of genetic analysis, we had no way to study complex communities of bacteria. And, um, you know, we're beginning, we're beginning to have that. But, um, you know, there's so much more that we don't know about bacteria than that we do know about bacteria. And I would say, you know, every week, every month, there's, um, you know, exciting new information about, um, you know, communities of bacteria as, as they exist in nature, the dynamics of these communities as you, um, um, you know, put them into some sort of a, um, a specific, specific selective environment for fermentation, how these communities of bacteria interact with the um, extremely elaborate communities of bacteria that exist within each of our uh, uh, intestines. So, I mean, I mean, there's there's just there's exciting new information being generated by new studies, uh, you know, every week, every month. Um, but our picture is still very incomplete. And I think, um, um, you know, sometimes people state, uh, uh, you know, as fact, um, you know, things that are not very well understood uh, uh, at all. Mm hmm. And so, uh, you know, you know, the whole uh, the, the whole question of probiotics, I would say, is something that is um, barely understood. 
um, um, you know, we know, you know, we know for sure that there is um, um, an extensive interaction that occurs between the bacteria that we ingest and the bacteria that are in residence in our intestines. Um, you know, what that looks like is still very uncertain. Um, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's very well documented that, you know, eating um, uh, um, uh, bacteria rich foods and probiotic capsules can have beneficial effects. Um, the mechanisms of that benefit are still, you know, very much um, a mystery. That's like the cutting edge of science, isn't it? How do these things actually, how do these microbes actually uh, help us. What are the what are the mechanisms? Uh, what are the the um, I guess uh, enzymatic pathways that they use to create this? Same in the soil as in our gut. It's it's so hard to to take something out of there and understand how it works in relation to the whole system. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, if you read, um, you know, what, what I would consider to be the the earliest clear articulation of the probiotic concept was more than 100 years ago, um, written by one of the early microbiologists named Eli Mechnikoff, and he was obsessed with yogurt. And in his articulation, you eat the yogurt that is, you know, full of all of these beneficial bacteria, and they basically take over your intestines. And, you know, every, all the bacteria that are there kind of move over and make room for the uh, powerful yogurt bacteria. I mean, we know now that it's not quite as simple as that, that, um, um, you know, the, the the trillion bacteria in residence in your intestines, you know, don't just like, you know, sort of move over to, you, you know, um, um, you know, make a seat on the bus for the, um, um, you know, the, the, the new arrivals. Um, there's, there's clearly um, um, an elaborate interaction happening at biochemical levels, happening at genetic levels, um, um, and there there definitely can be profound impacts from the interaction. But you know what we don't fully understand is um, you know what is the, the the nature of the interaction. But I think that there's a lot of um, you know exciting research being done to you know try to shine more light on the nature of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you mentioned yogurt, and I think a lot of people, if they haven't heard about um, or gotten in depth into fermentation before, that's what they think of probiotics is yogurt. Um, yeah. Could you share with us a little bit about how, how we could use either yogurt or other things or a variety of things in our diet to actually increase um, just that biodiversity? Well, okay. So, I mean, I mean, in my analysis, you, you know, you just hit the nail on the head. This is, you know, uh, what what probiotic stimulation is about is biodiversity. It's about, you know, uh, you know, restoring biodiversity, building biodiversity in the gut. Um, I mean, you know, yogurt is created by a community of organisms. You know, most contemporary commercial yogurts. 
um, involve much more limited communities of bacteria than are found in um, more traditional, what I would describe as heirloom yogurt cultures. Um, but 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 yogurts, you know, any yogurt can be um, you know a a a vehicle for um, um, you know some some probiotic stimulation and benefit. Um, you know, other kinds of dairy ferments, other kind, any kind of a vegetable ferment, um, and lots of other kinds of ferments. I mean, you know, um, um, olives could be could be probiotic. Salamis could be probiotic. Um, um, you know, different kinds of cheeses can be probiotic. Lots of different kinds of foods, you know, have, you know, depending on how they are produced, it's hard, it's hard to generalize. You know, if you buy a can of sauerkraut at the supermarket that's been heat processed, well, I mean, there were certainly um, a broad community of bacteria involved in the fermentation in the first place, but the product that you're buying at the supermarket has been heat processed. So those bacteria have been perished. So, you know, if you're looking for probiotic benefit from food, um, you know, either you need to make it yourself or you have to be, uh, you know, informed and savvy consumer who, you know, reads labels and knows what you're looking for. Um, you know, generally the, the products that have not been heat processed will, will have language that, that indicates that they'll say, um, you know, probiotic or raw or, um, um, you know, not heat processed or, 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 or something like that. Um, Sometimes people uh, uh, imagine that there is like a hierarchy of fermented foods and, you know, that this one is the the most probiotic or, you know, offers the, the greatest benefit. And, um, you know, I would argue that there is no hard and fast hierarchy of fermented foods and that, um, especially in terms of, um, immune stimulation, um, that the greatest benefit we can derive is from eating different kinds of fermented foods from, um, you know, being diverse in the microbial communities that we're ingesting. So, you know, that could mean, you know, different kinds of vegetable ferments, different kinds of dairy ferments, or just, you know, varying them or having more than one kind of ferment as, 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 as part of your diet. Um, you know, the other thing that I think it's really important for people to bear in mind is it's not just about eating bacteria. Um, you know, a, like a, a companion concept to the concept of probiotics is the concept of prebiotics. And that is, you know, fibers and um, very complex carbohydrates that are not easy for us to digest and basically are able to feed bacteria all the way along the length of our digestive systems. I mean, one of the big problems with our modern diets as compared to the diets of our um, long ago ancestors is that, you know, they ate you know, a lot more fiber and a lot more like very uh, starchy tubers and, um, you know, just different kinds of foods that, that, that really took the entire length of the digestive systems to, to break down. So, you know, in addition to eating, uh, uh, bacteria rich probiotic foods and a variety of them, um, you know, I think we need to sort of pay attention to eating, um, uh, uh to, to, to regularly eating, you know, foods with a lot of fiber, foods with inulin, different kinds of polysaccharides and complex carbohydrates, um, you know, that, that, that just, you know, take 
the entire length of the digestive system to break down. And maybe they don't even fully break down, but they're able along the way to be, uh, you know, excellent nourishment for bacteria along the entire intestines. And that's an important part of, you know, how we can have thriving biodiverse um, uh, uh, bacterial communities in our intestines to support you know, effective digestion, um, uh, improved immune function. And there's exciting new research being done uh, related to um, mental health and gut bacteria. And, um, you know, there's a growing recognition that, you know, serotonin and other biochemical compounds that determine, you know, how we feel, how we think are regulated by bacteria in our intestines and, um, um, you know, can be improved, um, um, you know, through biodiversity diversity and, um, you know, nourishing our bacteria well. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's uh, research coming out uh, all the time, every week on different things, like you said, about um, how it regulates or helps to contribute to our emotions. Um, but so let's just go back to prebiotics for a second. So you're basically saying you want to um, eat food that's going to not not necessarily dissolve in the stomach, but get all the way through the intestines um, and still be something left for the bacteria in your lower intestine to, uh, to feed on. Exactly. Right. So it'd be, it's, uh, I'm thinking, because I teach about um, composting, it'd be similar to a compost pile where you don't necessarily add um, bacteria. You just add the food for the bacteria and then the bacteria arrives. The bacteria... Uh, obviously comes on different bits and pieces, but it's there. And then it starts to increase in population as the food's available. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and I'm not saying instead of, I mean, I'm suggesting in addition to, um, but, but, but they're, that they're, <coughs> that they are sort of two distinct, um, you know, sort of elements, um, for restoring biodiversity. Um, um, you know, one is, um, uh, just an expanded pool of bacteria that you can get through diverse fermented foods. And the other, um, uh, is the, you know, kinds of nour- uh, the, the kinds of nutrients that can, um, um, you know, nourish them well. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is so exciting to, um, talk to someone who's really into fermentation. And I guess some people would probably call you the king of fermentation. Um, if there was, if the, if you were talking to someone who didn't know anything about, um, fermenting, uh, or fermentation, but wanted to start, what, what, what advice would you give them to start? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say like, don't be intimidated. Uh, you know, this is not rocket science. You know, people have been doing this for literally thousands of years, um, you know, with, with, um, you know, much less elaborate tools than you already have in your kitchen. Um, you know, if you can find, um, I, I mean, I generally suggest starting with sauerkraut uh, you know, only because it's like so intrinsically safe. It's so easy. There's no need to obtain starter cultures because everything you need is on the vegetables. There's no need for special equipment. You can 
can work with a jar that you already have sitting around your kitchen somewhere. If you take a liter-sized jar, that'll take about a kilo of vegetables. You um, chop up your vegetables to create surface area. You salt them. There's no magic number of salt. Uh, you squeeze them or pound them to start pulling some juice out of the vegetables. Once they're juicy, you uh, uh, um, um, uh, fill the vessel with them, press down so the vegetables are submerged under their own juices, and then you just wait. You know, a few days, a couple of weeks. Uh, you could go as long as a couple of months if you like it really uh, sour. But what I recommend that most people do is wait a few days and then just start tasting it every few days at intervals, and you'll get a sense of the flavors that can be created. Um, and you know, if it ever starts to get too strong, put it in the fridge, your fermentation slowing device, and that will slow it down to an imperceptible rate. But you know, the point is, it's easy. Um, you know, just, just, just jump in and try it. Don't be afraid to experiment, um, you know, and then, um, share it with people, spread your excitement, mm -hmm. spread the love of fermentation. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, what is the, the most, the weirdest ferment you've ever had? Well, I mean, I've sort of gotten to the point where, uh, I mean, Ferments don't seem weird to me. Like, I mean, I don't <laughs> okay. think that there's anything we could possibly eat that couldn't be fermented. Um, so, um, I mean, sure. I mean, I've tried some things that were like unfamiliar to me that, um, um, you know, I had to sort of, you know, my, my, at my first taste, they were like a little bit off-putting. I would say in general, like many flavors of fermentation are acquired taste that like nobody likes the first time they, 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 they taste them. But, um, but, you know, if we, tr if we try them again, and maybe the reason we try them again is because we see how much some other people are enjoying them. You know, once we acquire the taste, you know, let's say for some very ripe, uh, stinky cheese or, um, you know, some, um, you know, other delicacy from a part of uh, some other part of the world that's not familiar with us. Um, you know, once you acquire the taste and sort of see what's so special and unique about it, um, you know, nothing else replaces these. So, I, I mean, I just don't get surprised anymore. Um, you know, fermentation cr can create really interesting textures. Sometimes mm -hmm. the textures are more surprising than the, than the flavors. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think ultimately that, 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 that becomes another part of their appeal. Mm-hmm. I, I still just can't get over my dad eats roll mops and I just, I don't know. <laughs> I think they say that it takes 13 times of <laughs> tasting something to actually to really start to develop a taste for it. Well, you know, sometimes people try to tell me that like children don't like sauerkraut or fermented vegetables. And I mean, I just know that that is not true because I have, <coughs> excuse me, I've always loved sauerkraut. And, um, you know, what I would say is if you give it to an eight-year-old for the first time, they are not likely to like it. Um, but, you know, if they were teething on it when they were nine months old, like they're going to love it when they're eight years old and when they're 80 years old. So, you know, for parents of young children, um, you know, start start acclimating your child to, you know, to these smells and flavors and, um, um, you know, give them, give them a good leg up by having like a taste for these foods. That's right. In in Australia here, I'm sure you've uh, tried Vegemite. We use that for teething because it's so salty. Rub it on the 
on our kids' um, gums. And, well, I guess that's basically the, the, the dregs of fermentation. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think that that's a great example because I, I think that like, you know, every Australian has taken pleasure in, you know, trying to give some Vegemite to somebody who's never tasted <laughs> it before, who's visiting Australia. And, um, and, and, and um, you know, I have seen people just take utter delight in how put off some of the people who are not used to this flavor can be. Um, and I've had, uh, you know, exactly the same experience visiting Sweden, tasting their uh, uh uh, low salt fermented herring called sur strumming. Um, you know, they expect the visitor not to like it and they take great delight in their shared cultural identity that enables them to, you know, appreciate this unique flavor that, um, you know, outsiders who have never been exposed to it typically find so off-putting. But I can tell you, um, um, you know, I, like each time I, I taste sur strumming, I like it more. And, um, you know, as a species, we are extremely, extremely adaptable. And if you give foods another chance, um, um, you know, they become, um, you know, uh, um, more and more delicious. Mm-hmm. More and more delicious. Well, um, Sandor, thank you so much for coming on The Probiotic Life. Um, it's been a very interesting, stimulating chat for me. Well, great. It's been fun for me too. And I thank you so much for uh, having me on your show. Fantastic. Thanks once again, Sandor, for contributing your wisdom to this ongoing conversation, this tapestry, which I like to call the probiotic life. Uh, check out Sandor's website, wildfermentation.com. There's lots of great links on there, uh, links to his books. You can buy his books from his website. Um, what did you learn in this episode? Anything that stood out to you? I don't know if you noticed, but I'm learning a bit more about interviewing, about actually asking better questions and learning about being present and really listening. So uh, you might have noticed that. You might also notice there's a still a little bit of choppiness with the Skype. That's why I want to take this to the next level. That's what I'm announcing uh, next time on the podcast. A little bit more about how can we bring this up to the next level, the probiotic life. So look out for next episode uh, with Dan Kittridge of the Bionutrient Food Association. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.